Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. You know, one of the things that I wanted to start with today while you turn to Genesis 26, and for those of you who may not have your Bible, uh, some of the verses will be on the screen behind me, but it's really a good practice to be able to bring your Bible. You need to be comfortable with your Bible and to be able to know uh, where the books are and all that. Just you need, We need to be familiar, and my fear is with everything on a screen that we might lose our familiarity uh, with uh, with the scriptures. And so there's also something to me, and I know it's because I'm old, but uh, something very powerful about hearing the pages turn. Uh, I, I love that. But holiness, as we begin today, holiness, uh, being complete and righteousness are, are not what we are on the outside. And, and I, I, this is not a series. I'm not in a series right now, but I do want to just very quickly remind you that uh, one of the things that I feel like I'm hearing from the Lord is this, this need for us to be prepared for difficulty. Now, I'm by no means prophesying uh, some sort of a persecution, but I do believe that we, if we're going to remain faithful to the Lord, that faithfulness is going to be tested. It is already tested in our own lives through temptation and trials and things like that. But I do believe that it is going to be tested in, uh, in larger degrees, even in our politics and in our society. And, and as we have seen recently through COVID, there may be many opportunities going forward where things get tested and we may, we may find ourselves being encouraged more and more to be sidelined and to be uh, removed from gatherings quite this large. And, you, you know, five years ago, I would have never dreamed it. And now I can kind of see its potential. Uh, and so we have to be aware of that. And so one of the things that God gave me decades ago was a desire to, uh, to, to give away, for lack of a better word, uh, the importance of, of home discipleship, of the ability for us not just to come to church and listen to a preacher or to a teacher uh, teach, uh, to follow through some curriculum or to go through some sermons, but to be able to help people rightly divide the Word of God in your own daily life. That is my desire, is to help you at home to be able to know what is God saying, not to us, but to me. How am I going to live? How am I going to minister? How am I going to know what God wants? Uh, and so uh, if we're not careful, I think the, the neutral of our faith is where we begin to think that the things that we produce are what makes us holy. That the, uh, the habits that we, that we cultivate are what makes us righteous. But the truth of the matter is we do not have right standing with God because of what we do. But rather when what we do flows from who we are. And not because of who we are, but because, but because of what Jesus Christ is doing in us. That's where righteousness is found. Is our not understanding, not our approval, not our affirmation of Jesus Christ, not our simple belief that God, that there is a God, that is, that is not transforming. 
but our surrender to him. And I'm telling you this morning that when you are surrendered to King Jesus, it will shift the way you do life. And so then the, the thing that we can judge is, are the things I'm doing, am I working toward hoping that my heart will change if I do enough right things? Or is my righteousness built upon what Jesus Christ is doing in me and my surrender to that? In fact, this is not a new issue, I don't think. I, I, Paul even says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, he tell, telling these, and, and the, the context, very quickly, the context was these, the church at Galatia uh, were Jews, and then they had converted to uh, Christianity, and, and Judaism was working so well for them, and now Christianity is working for, so well for them, they decided to put Jesus on top of Judaism. And so now they are followers of Jesus Christ, but they're working to keep their salvation with Judaism. And here's what Paul said to them. Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, that you're now made perfect by the flesh? In other words, you were saved because the Spirit saved you, and for some weird reason, you think that you stay saved by doing good things. And the truth of the matter is... We don't go to heaven because we're good people or because we do good things. We go to heaven because we have surrendered everything we are to everything that he is. So in Genesis chapter 26, we're going to go on a little bit of a, of a history lesson very quickly. But in the land, there was a famine. And famines always speak of a bigger story. And so this famine is similar to the one that is in uh, Abraham's day. And uh, Abraham has already passed a couple chapters ago. And Isaac, his son, is journeying to an area named Gerar. And Gerar is ruled by the Philistines. By the way, most of that area uh, is ruled by the, the Philistines. Israel has not taken... Uh, um, uh, authority in the land just yet. And King Abimelech, Abimelech is a political name, not just a person. So this is, you know, you're going to see several Abimelechs. They're not all the same guy. It's like a title, Abimelech, a pharaoh or something. So uh, King Abimelech and Abraham uh, did the exact same thing when he was escaping a famine, if you remember. And in fact, there were two famines that Abraham moves away from. One of them was uh, when he went down to Egypt, and you remember his interaction with Pharaoh, and apparently Sarah was a very good-looking woman, and he was afraid if they find out she's my wife, they'll kill me and take her as their wife. And, uh, and, and while he was in Egypt, he amasses a great deal of material possessions, and, and, uh, and he also has uh, some male servants and some female servants and all kinds of livestock and, and some things like that. By the time that Pharaoh finds out that Sarah is actually his wife, uh, he sends, he sends uh, Abraham out with all of the things that he has acquired and says, you, you, you can't be here anymore. Uh, and, you know, I, I believe, I, I don't think that I can, I don't think that I can prove it. Uh, and it's not really that important, but 
I believe that when Abraham is in Egypt, that this is perhaps Hagar was one of the Egyptian female servants that was acquired by Abraham's family. It makes sense to me. But we need to beware when we run to Egypt for provision. That's the bigger story. Sometimes when we leave Egypt, some of Egypt goes with us. There's another famine that occurs, brought Abraham and all of his things down to Gerar. And again, I don't, you don't need necessarily need a map. I'll try to do my best to make get some of it make better sense. But uh, uh, Gerar is actually when when God tells Abraham, "All of the land is yours." Gerar is actually within that land, but it does not belong to him yet, not literally speaking. And so Abraham and the king Abimelech struck an agreement because. Abraham is in the land of Gerar with this other king Abimelech, and and uh, Abraham is doing, he's prospering, and and Abimelech says, hey, listen, you can't you can't you can't be here, and you're having a lot of influence, and and so uh, Abraham and the king strike an agreement, and Abimelech said to Abraham, he said, listen, I need to be able to tr-, I'm paraphrasing of course, but I need to be able to trust you, and so will you only do honest dealings with me? I mean, I'm, I'll let you stay here in the surrounding area, but if you'll only be honest with me, we can, we can strike agreement. Of course, Abraham said, yeah, we can strike an agreement. And so Abimelech gives him seven ewe lambs. And the reason that's important is because in Hebrew, seven ewe lambs is the Hebrew word Beersheba. And that's where Abraham dwells during this time. It's a very significant place in all of Israel's history, okay? So the following the pattern of his father, Isaac travels uh, uh, to, uh, due, due to this famine that's in the land, and he comes to the southernmost section of all of the promised land uh, to Gerar. And it's, Gerar's kind of on the Gaza Strip today, but kind of near the Mediterranean coast. And God appears to Isaac, And this is in uh, Genesis 26. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. But he advises, advises Isaac not to go to Egypt. I love it because here he is in Gerar. And he's about as close to Egypt as you can get into Egypt without being in Egypt. Sojourn in this land and I will be what? With you and I will... Bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. This sounds familiar. We've heard something similar like this just a few chapters ago when God was talking to Abraham. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice. And he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." So God, here to Isaac, the son of Abraham, God promised blessings and he reaffirms the oath made to Abraham. And the promise is good to the son because the father was faithful. And so what begins to happen, I think what what we're hearing from the Lord here, and there's going to be some ability for us to kind of put this on our story in a little while, but... 
Don't settle for jeopardizing my blessing out of fear, convenience, or desperation. That, that's what I hear the Lord telling Isaac. Because he's right there following in the footsteps of his daddy. And when he gets to that place at Gerar, he says, do not go into Egypt. Don't settle. I made a promise and I want you to hear it from my voice. Abraham heard it from my voice and he kept faithful. Isaac, I need you to hear my voice. I will bless you. I will keep you. I will make my oath to you because Abraham was faithful to me. And I'm going to bless all the nations of the world because of his faithfulness and the people of faith. And you need to remember that. And that truth, that promise, the reaffirming of that, the reclaiming it. Does Isaac know it? You betcha he knows it because he remembers laying on the altar and seeing how faithful God is. He's heard all the stories of his daddy and his daddy's interaction with him. Isaac knows who God is. Isaac has seen miraculous things. Isaac is a product of the miraculous. Amen? But he hadn't heard God's voice. He heard stories. But God shows up with his voice. And you know what it does to Isaac? I don't know what Isaac's long-term plans were. We don't know. But it's, it pauses him in Gerar because he heard his voice. And sometimes we need to be able to stop for a moment to hear his voice and remember his promises to us. And it will save us from stepping into Egypt. And, and maybe even just as important, it will keep Egypt from clinging to us. So Isaac settles in Gerar, but like his father and fearing his safety, he claimed that his wife was his sister. Rebecca was beautiful. So one day Abimelech noticed that, <clears throat> I, I, actually I love this too. Sometimes we kind of think of Old Testament characters walking around with burlap on, just being robots, speaking in languages that we don't understand. But you know, here, here Abimelech is, is looking out the window or looking out the door and he sees how Isaac and Rebecca are laughing with each other and enjoying each other's company. He's like, wait a minute. I would never smile at my sister like that. So he goes to Isaac and he says, that ain't your sister. Oh, king. So, uh, you know, he, he gets rebuked pretty heavily and he should, <clears throat> but he confronts him with this for this uh, deceit. But even despite this, Isaac is prospered. And, and the scripture says that he, he sows crops and he gains wealth and it stirs envy within the Philistines. And they're looking at this outsider in their country. And the scripture says that, that he, he gains 100 fold of what he sows. A hundred fold. And historically, uh, the, during, during this day in, in the Middle East, farmers would say that somewhere around the neighborhood of 25% is an incredible bountiful harvest. If you gained 50%, it was considered miraculous. A hundred percent is incredible. It's impossible, in fact. So the Philistines became very envious, and, and so in order to retaliate, they, they go to 
Isaac's home and they dump dirt in and they stop up all the wells that Abraham, his dad's servants, had built those wells when he lived there and they filled them all up so that he no longer had, he was cut off from life. And, and finally Abimelech comes to him and he says, hey, listen, <clears throat> you can't live here anymore. You gotta, you've got to go. And so Abraham does go, and he follows in almost the same pathways of his dad, and he goes to his dad's next wells. A little closer, he moves from the city, and he goes out to the valley of Gerar, and he establishes himself there. And you know what happens? They fill up his wells. It goes to the next place. You know what they do? They fill up his wells. It goes to the next place. Guess what they do? Fill up his wells. He goes to the next place. Guess what they do? Nope, they let him keep well there in that place. And they said, uh, in fact, he named the whales roominess because there's enough room for all of us. But now he's in the land called Beersheba, seven ewe lambs. It is the southernmost city. In fact, the Old Testament uses the word from Dan to Beersheba nine times. Dan is as far north as you can go in the promised land. Beersheba is as far south as you can go in to the promised land. And so it was a very significant part of Israel's history. It's, it's always where God's people turn the page. It's, it, Beersheba is where God speaks to his, to his people. It's where they get a second wind. It's where they're down but not out. They think they're out, but God gives them hope. And they may not know it at the time, but it did become the land of Simeon and Judah, those tribes. And it was here that Abraham heard the voice of God. It was here that Isaac hears the voice of God. Later, Jacob will hear the voice of God here. It was here that God even spoke to Hagar when she was crying in desperation about uh, Ishmael. And it was here that Elijah ran when he was running away from Jezebel in order to save his life. And it was here that he heard from God. And it, it was in Beersheba that Samuel's two rebellious, wicked sons ruled. They were leaders in this area and they would not listen to the voice of God here. And it was here in Beersheba that because of that, they rejected Samuel's sons as judges and they began to demand the voice of a king to lead us rather than the voice of God. The voice of God is established here in Beersheba and it matters. And ultimately, by the time you get to the prophet Amos, the land was the center of false worship. God's voice was cut off from Israel because they had failed to establish themselves in his presence like Isaac did. You see, that's a great history lesson, but how does that speak to my life? Well, at this time when God's voice is muted for them, it was because they had, they were calling themselves by his name, but they were not surrendered to him. In Beersheba, they called themselves after God's name. But they were not surrendered to God's voice. If you think about it, and I'm going to encourage you to, God, God in his sovereignty allows the Philistines to fill in the wells. It's almost like if you think about it, it's like, God is allowing the Philistines to kind of hedge 
Isaac, because Isaac was going to stay in the city of Gerar. Isaac was willing to go to the valley of Gerar. And all along the way, this opposition and this contention and these issues, God allows the Philistines to fill in well after well to kind of corral Isaac into Beersheba. Now, I don't want to make a whole lot of this, but sometimes we see the obstacles and the hedging of God as this big negative force like God's trying to get us. Sometimes it's the difficulties of life that are actually trying to get us to a place where we can hear his voice. But I can tell you, if God's voice is the most important thing, you won't mind filled in wells. But if filled in well, but if, uh, if, if your own well is the thing that you hope for, your convenience and your comfort is the thing you hope for, then every filled in well is going to be contentious. Okay, we're going to move down to chapter 26. I'm going to read, read in verse 24 is where we'll start. From there, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, called upon the name of the Lord, pitched his tent there. And there, Isaac's servants dug a well. This is Isaac's second wind. God had spoke to Isaac. And from that moment on, Isaac began to move, but never heard God's voice until he got to that place where he heard God's voice again, and he established himself. You know, when you hear God's voice, it's comfortable to walk under God's voice just like Israel is going to do with the cloud by day and the fire by night. Once you, once you know that his voice can be trusted, it's a whole lot easier to surrender to his voice. So this is Isaac's second wind. It's his next chapter. It represents a defining moment in the life of this patriarch. It reveals why Isaac is listed in the chain of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's why he's listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It's here that Isaac hears from God and ultimately obeys. And we find three things here that I want to draw out very quickly. Spiritual necessities for anyone who desires to live a life of faith. And if you examine the life of any man or woman who is experiencing real spiritual victory in their life, you will discover these three things with them. And when you have an encounter of God, these three things are always present. In fact, you will not find spiritual success or fruit without these three. But in order to find them, you have to move from belief to surrender. I think that is the message for the church today. We have to move from belief to surrender. The first thing we see is Isaac built an altar. He's heard from God. He's heard from God at least two times now. But after his encounter, he surrenders. And most of the time, we want to worship God in order to get him to speak 
right? We're looking for him. I mean, again, I'm not judging us by no means. I don't have the right to do that. But often we come into the presence of God hoping that he will give something to us. Like, like we're going to cry out to him and we're going to stand here until we feel something or until we hear something. But Isaac actually does just the opposite, right? Isaac, Isaac hears from the Lord and he responds by an altar. He hears from the Lord and then he responds with an altar and cries out to the Lord. This idea of crying out is the word kara, which means to, to, to proclaim openly, to emote fervently, to, to cry out to the Lord. And when we cry out, it's because we're hoping he will answer. But Isaac cries out because God has answered. And I just wonder, say, what, what, is, what difference does it make? I think it matters because it, it shows where we are in our surrender. How many of us would say, oh, I will surrender to you, Lord. I'll do whatever you want, Lord, if you will, whatever. I will build an altar if you, whatever it may be. But God has already spoken, and how does Isaac respond? With an altar. Remember, this was a time of great difficulty for Isaac. You, you, you can't see it. We can't see it uh, because we're reading it. We've already read it. You can't unsee what you've already read. But Isaac, Isaac is ex experiencing this in the moment. So what, what, what is Isaac's context? Isaac's con context is over the last several days, everywhere I go, I get run off. From place to place to place, from well to well to well, redigging wells and get them filled up, and redigging wells and get them filled up. I, Lord, you just told me that you were going to bless me. You just told me that that this land was going to belong to me and my and my heirs. You just told me that every family in the world is going to be blessed because of Abraham. And yet, everywhere I go, I get filled in wells until he gets to the place where God's voice is. And then he hears. And then he hears. I don't know how low and how anxious Isaac was feeling at this point. But the night he arrived in Beersheba, God appeared to him and he reminded him of the voice that he needed to hear. Wonderful words of assurance and promise. And he reiterated the Abrahamic covenant, what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And now it does not only belong to Abraham, it belongs to Isaac. Now his link just got fortified in the chain. You know, it's one thing to know the promise to Abraham. It's another thing to have it reestablished. Here, here, here's what I want to say about that. For, 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 there's a ton that I want to say, but I'm, I'm going to just kind of cut through a lot of it and just say this. It's one thing to know the stories of the promise. It's another thing to have it reconfirmed in you, to have it reaffirmed in you. But I'm telling you, that God's faithfulness, God's promises are answered in Jesus Christ. And it's one thing to live on the stories that you've heard all your life. It's one thing to live on the history lessons that you've heard your whole life about God's faithfulness. But I'm telling you that God's faithfulness is good every generation. It is reaffirmed in every person for all time. But you have to claim it. You have to hear it for yourself. You have to believe it for yourself. And ultimately, you have to surrender your pathway to it. 
Now, all of a sudden, he is not just the son of Abraham. He is the receiver of the promise. And his whole life begins to shift. This altar speaks of ongoing dedication. This wasn't a moment of crying out. This wasn't a moment of despair. This wasn't begging God to do something. Building an altar means I'm coming back to this place time and time again. This is going to be a place not just for me, but I intend for the next generation to be able to come and sit at this place because this is where God reaffirms his promises. Now, obviously, I'm not telling us that we need to go to Beersheba, but I'm telling you that there is God's faithfulness in your life. And we need to be a people who build altars, a people who have heard from God and a people who surrender themselves to God, build an altar, and we keep pointing people to that altar, that place of surrender, because we know that God is faithful. You look, at, you look at his daddy's life. Every time that Abraham had an encounter with God, you know what Abraham does? He builds an altar. Genesis chapter 12, when God shows up and says, hey, you're the one, Abraham. You know what Abraham does? He builds an altar. Later in that chapter, it's reconfirmed. You know what Abraham does? Because he's moved from that place now. God's voice has moved him on. You know what he does? He builds an altar. Every time that God speaks, Abraham responds by building an altar. Abraham was an altar builder. Most of those altars were built at least before Isaac. I don't know that we even know of all the altars that he builds, but every time God spoke, Abraham built an altar and worshiped. And so Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. An altar is where you make your sacrifices to God. It's where you make your promises to God. And your sacrifices, listen to me carefully, they cannot be sacrifices of intention and sacrifices of the mind. Your sacrifices have to cost some things for, the, for you to be willing to change your mind, to prove that your mind has been changed. Today, I feel like we have, we have really substituted real sacrifice with our intentions and we say well I would love God how much I love God with everything in me well where's our sacrifices that prove that we look at our consistency and our consistency doesn't show that we love God with everything in fact we look more like the people of Beersheba 500 years from now where we claim the name of God but we don't make our sacrifices to him or our sacrifices don't cost us much. We make our verbal commitments, we make our verbal surrender, but our hearts are far from Him. Paul actually talks about it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He said, I beseech you, or I urge you, I beg you by the mercies of God, meaning that He has been given, we have been given mercy by God so that we can hear this one more time. I beg you by God's mercy that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that word reasonable service means it just makes sense, doesn't it? That you make your bodies a living sacrifice that you build an altar because you have heard from God and because you have heard from God you empty yourself of yourself and you put on the righteousness of Christ 
It just makes sense, Paul says. But reason hasn't been enough. You, your thinking has gotten you there, but you need something else. And what is it? Paul goes on. Transformed minds, not reasonable minds. It is reasonable, but reasonable minds don't change your life. Do not be conformed to this world because you can talk yourself into being a living sacrifice and it costs nothing. And you can say, yes, it makes sense, but it costs you nothing. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Where is your altar? Where, where is our altar? Where, where, have, where have we surrendered everything? Where have we surrendered our hearts? Where have we surrendered our minds? Where have we surrendered our hands? Where have we surrendered our tongues? Where have we surrendered our time? Where have we said, Lord, because of what you have said, not, Lord, I'm in trouble now. If you surrendered yourself, I mean, Isaac knew what he wanted his life to look like. Son of a hero. But it was here Isaac lays down his dreams, his hope, his family. And it was a place that he's going to come back to time and time again. Because our surrender isn't a statement. Our surrender is a lifestyle. It's an altar that we continually come back to. We reaffirm. He reaffirms his promises. We reaffirm our surrender. You may say, well, if I had an encounter with God like Abraham and Isaac, I would, I mean, if God were to just, you know, when I get home, if God were to say, hey, listen, here's, here's a promise for you, well, then I would build an altar out in my backyard. But, but he has made you that promise. He has reaffirmed his promise to you and every day his mercies are new. And his grace overcomes every sin that we've ever, every brokenness that we've ever experienced. His, his grace is, he's constantly reaffirming. And in those days where you say, Lord, I just don't know if you love me or not. I don't know if I'm valuable or not. I'm just Isaac. I'm not Abraham. If, Lord, I if I knew what God really thinks about me, then I would, and I would tell us, if you want to know what God thinks about you, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's where our altar begins. It's the cross of Jesus Christ because there he proves how valuable he believes you are to him. There he showed and demonstrated his great love for us. And he said, I'm making a promise to you. And all of this belongs to you. And every nation of the world will be blessed through you. And we set on our hands. He's given us the kingdom and we're setting on our hands. Don't tell me that if we only heard from God, we would whatever. Because we have heard from God and we ain't. You know why I believe that's true? And I don't, me too. <clears throat> I think it's true because you cannot, will not, sacrifice for beliefs. You cannot sacrifice for beliefs. 
but you will sacrifice for relationships. Amen? You think about the things that you hold dear, you might be willing to negotiate those push comes to shove. But when people that you love are involved, that's where you know sacrifice and you experience sacrifice. And I really believe that this is one of the reasons why we sit on our hands is because we will not sacrifice for the things we believe. But we're not walking in relationship quite like we ought to be. Because if, if we knew, if we recognized that the glory of God was at stake in our life, through our life, and all the nations could be blessed by the glory of God, if we loved the glory of God to that degree, we'd get off our hands. Well, let's move, let's move on. <clears throat> Isaac also pitched a tent. He pitched his tent there. And this is interesting, and I think that the timing of it matters because it's the only time. This is found at least in 10 verses that somebody... Uh, pitch their tent and and this is the only time through all of that that the altar came first Isaac Isaac demonstrates proper priorities most of the time it's well we'll get our house in order or we'll get our tent in order and then we worship but not for Isaac I've heard the voice of God the altar comes first he met with God and he pitched his tent there People should always want to be staying close to the presence of God and the direction of God. If this is where God is speaking, this is where I want to be. And I want you to notice that he built a, he pitched a tent. He didn't build a house. The reason that Isaac stayed in Beersheba was not because that was home, but it's where God was speaking. And rather than asking God to be flexible and to follow us around, we need to be the flexible ones and say, God, I'll go wherever you're speaking. Right? Wouldn't we want to say that? Don't we want to say that? Lord, if I know you would speak to me there, I would go there. If I knew that you would speak to me, I want to be in your presence regardless of where, of where that takes me. We say, I, you know, I, I would go wherever God tells me to go. And I think that we probably believe that, but I also believe God is calling us to the nations. And we don't. I believe that God is calling us to our coworker, and we don't. I think that wherever, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where is God? With me. Right with me. Lord, I'll go wherever you go. I will go wherever I'm aware of your presence. As long as your presence is where I'm comfortable. Oh, how quickly we are satisfied. Isaac's house was not some geographical location where he kept all his possessions. His home was wherever God and God's will were to be found. And as Christians, I think sometimes we miss the idea of, and I think it's because we're not surrendered. I believe that if we were surrendered, it would be easier to pitch tents. But because it's not, we're not surrendered, we kind of become citizens of this kingdom. But if we were surrenders, we surrendered, we would recognize that we are citizens of another kingdom and it'd be a whole lot easier to see ourselves as sojourners, just passers through, just aliens in another land. 
Just people that are just working our way through. And because if you're surrendered, you're, like you're drawn to that relationship. And if we were really surrendered to Jesus, then we would be able to see ourselves as this, this world is just kind, of, just kind of fleeting away. It's just getting more and more dim. And yet in our, most of our modern lives, we're trying to manifest the world more and more and more to make it worth more. How, how am I valuable here? What's my identity here? And we start seeking the identity that the world gives us rather than recognizing who we are. We're not the son of Abraham. Well, we are the sons of Abraham by faith, but we're the sons and daughters of God. And that should be the relationship that drives us to be willing to just pass through this world instead of finding our identity in it. If an altar speaks of surrender, then a tent speaks of separation. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Also loved, I love that John captured Jesus' modeling of this perfectly for us in John chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, And the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, tabernacled among us, and we gazed upon his glory, the glory as the only begotten Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he said over in his letters, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things of the world for the world is passing away in the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. An altar speaks of surrender. I think the tent speaks of separation. And then thirdly, Isaac dug a well. I wish that I had enough time to go through this the way that I would like to go through this. <clears throat> but I believe that a well symbolizes or speaks of dependence or reliance. The Bible describes a person who reads and meditates upon the Word of God as a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Many years ago, I started a kind of a devotion to the idea of the water in the Word of God. And, you know, there are about 722 allusions to the concept of water in the Scripture. And what I love to do is to find these allusions and lay down the concept of the Word of God on top of that, and you would be struck by how often... It is obvious that God intends water to represent the Word of God, building dependency upon the Word of God, the water of God's Word. In fact, the very first mention of water is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. I want to show you something very quickly while we're here. If, if you go back in Genesis, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void Darkness upon the face of the deep. God said, let there be light. It's, it's always about the Spirit hovered over the face of the, of the deep or the waters. And yet, what's the first thing that God created? I'll give you a hint. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. But did you know before God created light, there was already water? The Bible never speaks of the creation of water. What in the world? How in the world have I lived so long in my faith and not seen that the Bible does not speak of the creation of water? 
nor does it speak of the origin of the Word of God because it's eternal. God separates the waters from the waters, but He doesn't talk about creating it. I don't know for sure what to do with that. Except in studying it, I come across Peter. I don't know how I missed this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. Water existed before light. There's no record of its creation. But it says in verse 4, and they will say, well, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And he's talking about those who would scoff at the end time and say, well, where is Jesus already? They've been talking about it for thousands of years that he's coming and things have just kept right along ever since day one. Verse five says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Water speaks to us as the Word of God. There's so many illustrations to reveal this, but even in marriage, Ephesians 5, 26, concerning the church, we read that Jesus, the husband, might sanctify and cleanse his wife with the washing of the water by the Word. Psalm 119.9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your Word? Reading the Bible has this cleansing, this satisfying effect. If you go into the Old Testament, into the tabernacle, uh, you read in Exodus chapter 30, verse 18, that Moses was to make this laver of brass and put water in it. And this was to be situated between the, the temple, the holy, the holy place where sacrifices took place, the altar, and the places of, of praise, the place of worship and the place of sacrifice. And so the priests were to go to that labor in whichever direction they went, to the place of sacrifice or to the place of worship, they had to first come and wash their hands and their feet so that their actions and their path would be clean and pure by the water. It's not an accident that Jesus uses this exact same illustration in the book of John when he is washing the disciples' feet, cleansing their way. They were dirty, but there's a lot of other ways of illustrating that. And Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Does not need to wash except for his feet is completely clean and you are clean saying I'm washing your feet as an Old Testament tabernacle illusion to the water of God's word cleansing our pathway in our life boy I tell you see ya I don't know maybe this is going to sound old fogey-ish that a word? Can I say that? I don't know. Sometimes I say things and people come later and say, you can't say that anymore. I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know. How do I don't know. Uh, but it just seems like we're increasingly biblically illiterate to me. It's like we know less and less and less about 
And again, I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I know we're all different places, and you know, some, some haven't even surrendered their life to Jesus yet. How could you possibly be biblically illiterate? But it seems among those who are walking with God, we're just so quick to just take somebody else's word for it. And we're just so quick to not do our own homework. Just so quick not to, not to spend time in God's word. He's got all kinds of other excuses and distractions. And John 15, 3, Jesus said, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. I'll finish with this one, Ezekiel 36, 25, concerning the nation of Israel in a future day. Uh, this is what the prophet Ezekiel says, And I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be clean from all your filthiness and, and from all your idols, and I will cleanse you. And I believe that this is a, a promise from God for a time that Israel will return back, but there's also clearly an implication here for the sinner who would come to Jesus uh, out of their sin and into, into his you know, pure, purity. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Water speaks to us of spiritual life. Isaac dug a well. I don't know if Isaac understood the meaning of this symbol or not in his day. But I know that the Holy Spirit knew it for our preservation. The three realms of life are worship, our home, and our work. The three primary disciplines or places of discipline in our life are worship, our holiness, our separation from the world are pure lives that come from separation and our dependency or reliance upon the Word of God as the source of life and satisfaction. I'm not an expert with water, but I do know, and I'll save you from a lot of the grotesqueness of it, but if you are deprived of water for very long, there's a couple of things that happen. The first thing that happens and is happening to me right now, is you start to feel dry. And, um, and in that dryness, the second thing that begins to happen, and some of you experience it maybe faster than others, is you begin to get stiff. You ever gotten stiff? That neck really is the stiff. It's what's when you first notice it. You get stiff-necked. Some of you are feeling it right now, in fact. One of the next stages is hallucinations. You ever seen people or heard of people that see like a, and if they're in the desert and they see these little oasises out there in the desert, what's it called, mirage or something? So begin to hallucinate, see things that aren't really there, begin to live by a false set of re, false reality. Did you know that if you live your life without the Word of God, you begin to get dry, the Word of God says? You get stiff necked and rigid. And you begin to adopt a false sense of reality. Revelation 21.7 says, And the Spirit said to the bride, Say, Come and let 
He who hears, say, come, and let him who is thirsty come, and whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Well, I'm certain that regardless of where your altar is or how far away it is from this present reality, forward or backward, I am certain that today is a day for an altar. Today is the day to remember a tent. And today is the day to remember a whale. And upon those three things, we find satisfaction, stability, surrender, direction, purpose, and eternity. And so today, last week I called you, asked you, to make a commitment. And today, I'm asking you to make a personal commitment to devote yourself to these things, these three things, to remember that you have heard the voice of God. And today is the day of a reaffirmation, at best, a reaffirmation at an altar to, to maybe ask the Holy Spirit to purify your heart and whatever, whatever anchors you are holding on to in this world, that you'll be able to cast them away and that you'll be free and free indeed by ordering your life according to God's Word. Not just because we're beginning a new year, although that's the perfect time. To, I'm starting a diet tomorrow, in fact, uh, Now I know who was here last week. Uh, But not because we're beginning a new year, but because we're in a place for a new chapter in our individual lives. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we thank you for your word and thank you for what it teaches us through your spirit. I ask that this morning we would uh, be able to contemplate the process by which we need to adopt these three habits. They're not just simply decisions that we need to make. They are commitments that we need to make daily. We thank you for the cross as a moment in time, but you you told us to take up the cross daily. So, Lord, because of that, we recognize this ongoing need, this ongoing dependency. So I pray that today, Lord, and your spirit as our God, help us to realize the areas of our life that are not consecrated to you. You know, we, we're, we're begging you to come into our life, but maybe we need to pause and ask to come into yours. Lord, we are going through the motions. We know how to have church. We know how to be Christian. But I'm fearful that we are too tethered to this world. That our intentions are what we are willing to sacrifice, not not reality. Making promises, calling ourselves by your name, but not, not truly devoted to you. So Lord, I pray that not my words, but your spirit would pierce through all of the the lies that we believe. None of us us live in that way because we choose to. We're, we're, 
we're actually quite blind to it. And, and so, Lord, today I pray that you would just remove our blindness, that we may see, melt our stiff necks by your word, lift the veils from our eyes so that we can see who we are in you and recognize our value with you and to be able to hear your voice and that everywhere we go, Lord, will be a, an altar whereby we can make a sacrifice. Every step we take is ordered by you, washed by you. Lord, we've tried on our own and we, it leaves us empty. We want more, bigger, better, happier. We're always on the pursuit of something else. Maybe this will satisfy. Maybe, a, maybe another friend group. Maybe another spouse. Maybe another job. Maybe another home. Maybe another whatever it is. Lord, these are just, just proofs of our blindness. Not that there's not room for advancement and change. But Lord, they, they do not satisfy our heart. So I pray that today you would just melt us so that we can see. We can know what to commit, what to surrender. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Will you stand with me, please? This morning, I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to ask Chris if he would just sing. And I'd like for us to keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed and maybe just keep a posture of reverence. And uh, I'd like for us just to pray individually and just ask God to, to give you sight. Ask him to see the areas in your life that maybe are not at the cross. Areas of your life that are not surrendered to him. Areas of your life that, that excite you more about this world than the next. And the things in your world, in your world, in your life that have more value to you than his word. You will become what you worship. The best time to build an altar is when you've heard God speak. Because if you wait too long, you'll, you'll allow Satan to talk you out of it. And I say that because before you leave today, if the, if the Lord is speaking to your heart, and you know if he is or not, but if he is speaking to your heart today, I'd love to pray with you right down here. Don't leave before you build an altar. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us. We ask that you be high and lifted up as we go. Lord, you be glorified as we worship you, as we live for you, and as we become dependent and reliant upon your will and your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.